You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature. Twelve Lectures, translated by Johanna Collis. This is Lecture 10, given in Dornach on the 13th of December, 1919. Yesterday I spoke to you about the relationships between anthroposophical spiritual science and the forms present in our building. I wanted especially to point out that the relationship this building has with our science of the spirit is not an external one, but that what has flowed into these forms is the spirit which holds sway in our spiritual science. It is especially important to be able to claim that a genuine feeling and understanding of these forms amounts to a reading of the inner meaning present in our movement. Today I intend to mention some other aspects regarding the building in order then, either still today or else tomorrow, to follow this up with some important points emerging from anthroposophy. When you look at the ground plan of the building, you will notice that it has the form of two overlapping circles, one smaller and one larger, which I can draw like this. See plate 16. The building as a whole is oriented east to west. As you can see, this east-west line is the only symmetrical axis. Everything relates symmetrically to this axis. For the rest, there is here no mechanical repetition of the forms such as is otherwise found in architecture, for example with matching capitals and so on. Rather, as I said yesterday, there is an evolution of the forms so that subsequent forms evolve out of previous ones. Rounding off the outer ambulatory, you can see seven columns on the left and seven on the right. And as I mentioned yesterday, the seven columns have capitals and plinths, and between them architraves, all of which develop their forms sequentially. If you can have a sense of this ground plan, then simply in these two interlocking circles, by grasping this through your feelings, you will find something which points to the evolution of humanity. As I said yesterday, a significant caesura occurred in the evolution of humanity approximately in the middle of the 15th century. What we call history in the external academic sense is no more than a fable convenu, for it gives us only external information. History in this sense gives us the impression that the human beings of the 8th or 9th century were no different than those of the 18th or 19th century. Actually, some more recent historians, for example, Lamprecht, 
do say that this is nonsense and that actually the soul constitution and the soul mood of human beings was quite different before and after the stated date. In the present time we find ourselves in the midst of a development we can only comprehend if we become aware of how we are developing toward the future with certain specific soul forces of our own. These soul forces, which continued to develop until the 15th century, are in the process of fading away. Although they do to some extent still haunt human souls, they belong to that which is dying out, that which is doomed to fall away from human evolution. If one wants to become capable of making a contribution to the affairs of humanity in the present time, and in the near future, one must develop an awareness of this important turnabout in human evolution. Such things find an expression, especially where human beings are trying, in a meaningful way, to indicate what they feel and sense. Let us remind ourselves of the architectural development discussed here yesterday, and which I now want to mention again, using an example which demonstrates how human evolution progresses. Let us look at the forms present in a Greek temple. What do these forms of a Greek temple tell us? We can only understand what they are telling us by realizing that the whole architectural concept of this Greek temple is oriented toward creating a dwelling place for the god or goddess whose statue is present there. All the forms of the Greek temple would amount to an absurdity if they were not conceived of as a dwelling which enwraps the god or goddess who is to stand within it. When we now proceed from the forms of the Greek temple to those of the next significant architectural buildings, we come to the Gothic cathedral. If one enters a Gothic cathedral and sees it as something complete in itself, then one is failing to understand its forms, just as one fails to understand the forms of a Greek temple, if one does not include in it the statue of the god or goddess. A Greek temple which lacks the image of a god or goddess is impossible for us to comprehend in a feeling way. Similarly, a Gothic cathedral which is empty is also impossible to imagine in a feeling way. A Gothic cathedral is only complete when it is full of a congregation, or rather when it is filled with people who are being addressed by someone so that the spirit of the word holds sway in the hearts of the congregation. That is when a Gothic cathedral is complete. The congregation is part of it, for without that its forms are incomprehensible. What is it that evolves for us from the Greek temple to the Gothic cathedral. There are also other developments between these two, intermediate forms about which other erroneous interpretations are made. But what is the significance of this evolution for us? In Greek culture, that flowering of the fourth post-Atlantean period, we see that something still lived there, some way in which the divine spiritual powers lived among human beings. 
a way which made those people, who could only imagine them in images, want to build dwellings for them. The Greek temple is the dwelling of the god or goddess of whom people were still aware. The god still moved about among human beings. The presence of the Greek temple in the midst of Greek culture would be inconceivable without that awareness of the divine spiritual powers. If we now move on from the flowering of Greek culture toward its gradual conclusion in the age of the fourth post-Atlantean period, that is, toward the time of the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries after Christ, we arrive at the forms of Gothic architecture in the way it calls for there to be a congregation. It entirely fits in with the feeling life of people in those times. The mood of soul of human beings was now, of course, different from what it had been in the time of Greek thinking. There was no longer an immediate awareness of the presence of the divine spiritual powers. They had moved far away into the beyond. The earthly realm was often bemoaned as having fallen away from the divine spiritual powers. The physical earth was seen as something to be avoided, something from which one must avert one's gaze. It was the spiritual powers to whom one ought to turn. So one person after another sought the company of others in the congregation, in a way searching for the group spirit of humanity, whereby the workings of the spirit gained a degree of abstractness. That is also why the forms in Gothic architecture make a rather abstract mathematical impression in comparison with the more dynamic forms of Greek architecture, with their gesture of forming a domicile around the god or goddess. In the Gothic forms, everything soars upward, aspiring to attain the spiritual distances for which the soul is searching. For the Greeks, their god and their goddess were present, With the ears of their soul, they heard them murmuring. In the uprising forms of Gothic times, however, the yearning soul could only sense the divine. Thus, with regard to a mood of soul, humanity came to yearn, to live in yearning and seeking, relying on yearning and seeking in community, feeling that searching in community would be more felicitous, while at the same time becoming ever more convinced that the spiritual and the divine, rather than living in direct contact with human beings, was something to be sought where it lay mysteriously hidden in underground regions. In order to find a way of expressing what was yearningly striven for, yearningly sought after, all one could do was somehow seek a connection with something mysterious and the expression for a soul mood of this kind was the cathedral, especially in its typical form of the Gothic cathedral. However, in yearning for what was the highest and most mysterious, when endeavoring to rise from the natural to the supernatural, it was necessary to move from what was merely Gothic to something else, which one could say did not merely unite the members of the physical congregation, but rather the overall spirit of humanity, or all the soul spirits of humanity striving together toward a central point, 
a mysterious central point. Imagine the totality of all human souls streaming together from every point of the compass. Here worldwide humanity meets as though in a great cathedral, not Gothic in appearance, but with the same intention as a Gothic cathedral. In medieval times such things were connected with the Bible. Imagine how the seventy-two disciples, one need not think of physical history, but this was the spirit which flowed through the world at that time. Imagine how, in the spirit of the times, the seventy-two disciples of Christ spread out to all quarters of the compass in order to plant into souls the spirit which was to unite in the mystery of Christ. Then, in what streams back into the center from the Christ spirit, which the disciples carried out to the souls, in what streams back from every direction of the compass, you have in the most all-embracing way, in the most universal way, what people of the early Middle Ages thought of as that which strives toward the mystery. There is perhaps no need for me to draw all seventy-two of them, but I can suggest them here. See plate 16. This signifies the seventy-two pillars. From these seventy-two pillars, the rays would emanate which flow from humanity as a whole toward the mystery of Christ. If you were to surround the whole with some sort of wall, as I have already explained, one cannot remain fixed at the Gothic stage with some sort of wall with a circular ground plan and imagine the seventy-two pillars here. Then you would have the cathedral which embraces, as it were, the whole of humanity. If you were then also to imagine its orientation from east to west, you would find a ground plan quite different from that of our building, which is a combination of two partial circles. This ground plan here would give you an entirely different feeling, a feeling which I have tried to describe to you. The main lines of orientation in such a building would have the form of a cross, so that one would have to imagine the main aisles also being arranged in the form of a cross. For medieval human beings, this represented the ideal cathedral. If this is the east and this the west, then north and south are here. In the north, south and west, there would be three portals, and here in the east would be a kind of main altar. And where each arrow is, there would be a kind of side altar. And here, where the arms of the cross intersect, the temple within the temple would have to be situated. This would then be the summing up of the whole, a repetition in miniature of that which is represented by the whole. In the abstract language of today, we would describe this as a miniature domicile for the sacrament in the shape of the building as a whole. Try to imagine what I have sketched here in an architectural style resembling the Gothic, but with a good deal also of forms from the Romanesque style, with the whole picture oriented in the way I have shown. What I have given you is a sketch of the Grail Temple as imagined by human beings in the Middle Ages. That Grail Temple which represented an architectural ideal in the latter period of the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. This was a cathedral into which would flow all the yearnings 
of a humanity oriented toward Christ in the same way as the yearnings of a congregation would flow into an individual cathedral, or, furthermore, in the way human beings in a Greek temple, in a specific region, would feel themselves to be united with their god or their goddess, even though they themselves would not have been inside the temple, since the temple was a dwelling solely for the god or goddess, and not for human beings. Another way of expressing this would be to say that a Greek, in describing his relationship with the temple, would say the same as he would with reference to a person's relationship with his house. He would say, Pericles dwells in this house. He would not mean by this that the person in question had any relationship such as ownership with the house. He would simply be expressing his feelings about the relationship of Pericles with the house. And he would have been expressing exactly the same nuance of his feeling regarding the architectural style of the temple when he said, Athena dwells in this house. This is the dwelling place of the goddess Athena, or Apollo dwells in this house. This is not something which could have been said by the medieval congregation of a cathedral. A cathedral was not a house in which the divine spiritual being dwelt. It was a house which expressed in every architectural nuance that it was a meeting place in which one oriented one's soul toward the mysteriously divine. Thus, within the Ur temple of the later part of the fourth post-Atlantean culture, there was the temple of the temple, the cathedral of the cathedral. So, of the whole structure, one could say, Once I have entered here, I shall be able to raise myself up to the mysteries of the universe. In the case of the cathedral, one had to enter into it. In the case of the Greek temple, one only had to say, This is the house of Apollo. This is the house of Pallas Athena. And the central point of that Ur temple, where the arms of the cross intersected one another, there was the central point which harbored the Holy Grail. So you see, this is the manner in which one must follow up the moods which characterize the different historical periods. If one does not do so, one cannot get to know what really happened. And, above all, one cannot, without such considerations, discover the soul forces now beginning to evolve in our own present time. Well, then, the Greek temple enveloped the god or the goddess, and one knew that they were present there among the human beings. But medieval people did not feel this. They felt that within the earthly world they had been deserted by the divine. They yearned to find a way to the gods or to the god. We, meanwhile, are still at the outset of this, for only a few centuries have thus far passed since the great turnaround in the middle of the 15th century. Most people are barely able to discern what is coming about, but it will come about, and things will change within the souls of human beings. So what now flows into the architectural forms, that within which the consciousness of our time will be embodied, 
This will once again have to change. However, these things cannot be brought about through reason, through intellectual fantasy. They can only be sensed and felt and observed artistically. Anyone wanting to approach them by means of abstract concepts does not in fact understand them. Nevertheless, one can point to these things by characterizing them in various ways. So the Greeks felt in some way that the gods or goddesses were their contemporaries, their fellow inhabitants, and medieval people had their cathedral, which was not God's dwelling place, but which served in a way as an entry portal to the path which leads to the divine. People gathered in the cathedral where they sought, as it were, to find their path by means of humanity's group soul. This quality of the group soul is what characterizes medieval humanity. Prior to the middle of the 15th century, the human individuality was less prominent than it is now. Since that time, it has been the essential characteristic of the human being to strive for individuality, to strive for the forces of personality, in order to discover the center of one's own being. One cannot reach an understanding of what is rising to the surface in the many social demands of our time unless one recognizes the individual spirit in every human being. The desire of every individual human being to stand upon the foundation of his own being. Something especially important for the human being will arise out of this age which began in the middle of the 15th century and will come to its conclusion near the fourth millennium. Something very important for this period will arise. You see, to say that every human being is striving for his own personal individuality is rather a vague way of expressing something. The group spirit, even that of quite a small group of individuals, is much easier to comprehend than that which is being sought by every individual out of his own original source. It is for this reason that it has become especially important in recent times for every modern human being to comprehend what is meant by seeking the balance between opposite poles. In the one direction one wants to rise up from the head, Everything that makes us into daydreamers, fantasists, hallucinators, what gives us vague mystical urges for an indefinable future, or what fills us when we become pantheists or theists or something similar, belongs to the one pole. And the other pole is sobriety, aridness of mind, or put trivially, while not being at all untrue with respect to the spirit of our time, philistinism, bourgeois narrow-mindedness, anything that drags us down to earth and into materialism. These two polar forces exist within the human being, and he stands between them with the duty to seek for balance. How many ways are there by means of which one can search for balance? You can discover this by once again looking at the image of the scales, see plate 17. How many ways are there by means of which one can search for balance between two poles which pull in opposite directions? 
As you can see, if one pan of the scales carries 50 grams or 50 kilograms, and the other the same, then there is equilibrium. And if one pan carries one kilogram and the other also one kilogram, once again there is balance. And if there are one thousand here and one thousand here, yet again there is balance. Balance can be sought in countless ways. And this corresponds with the countless ways in which one can be a human being. That is why it is so essential for present-day human beings to be aware of how their very being exists in the striving for balance between the two opposing poles. As I have just said, the search for balance cannot be defined specifically. The human being of the present time will only cope with his search if he links it with the striving for balance. Just as important as it was for Greeks to feel that Pallas Athena or Apollo were working in their community, because here was the house of Pallas Athena or here was the house of Apollo, just as important as it was for medieval human beings to feel that there was a place where they could gather which harbored something, whether it was the relic of a saint or even the Holy Grail itself, a place where they could gather and into which the longing of their souls for something indefinable could flow. So is it now important for the modern human being to develop a sense of who he is as an individual, a sense that as an individual he is a seeker for balance between two polar opposite forces, From the point of view of the soul, one could also say that, on the one hand, there exists something which one is looking for beyond the head, everything effusive, everything fantastical, everything which wants to develop passion and which cannot be bothered with real situations in life. That is the one extreme of the soul. And the other is what drags the soul down to the earth to everything prosaic and dry as dust, any humorless intellectualism and so on. This can also be expressed physiologically. The one pole involves the rushing of the blood, the boiling of the blood to fever pitch. The one pole, physiologically speaking, involves everything connected with the forces of the blood, while the other is everything associated with bony rigidity, with whatever is petrified right up to the physiological extreme leading to sclerosis in its various forms. So here too, between sclerosis and fever as the radical extremes, the human being must seek physiologically to retain his balance. Basically life consists in the search for balance between what is prosaic and dry as dust and what is effusive and fantastical. In our soul we are healthy when we have found the balance between what is effusive and fantastical and what is prosaic and dry as dust. And in our body we are healthy when we can live in an equilibrium between fever and sclerosis. This can be attained in infinitely many ways and it is this in which the individuality can come alive. It is in this sense that the human being, especially now in our modern times, must find the meaning of Apollo's ancient dictum, Know Yourself, 
but not in a disconnected kind of way. What it means is know yourself in your striving for balance. It is for this reason that we shall place in the eastern part of our building the sculpture which will give people a sense of this striving for balance. This is what will be expressed in the carved wooden group I mentioned yesterday. In the center will be the figure of Christ. In this figure the endeavor is made to represent the Christ in a way which will show this is indeed how the Christ walked upon the earth in Palestine within the human being Jesus of Nazareth at the outset of the Christian era. Conventional images of a bearded Christ were not created until the 5th or 6th century, and they were mostly not, if I may say so, true portraits. Our endeavor here has been to create a true portrait of the Christ, who at the same time represents the human being in his striving for balance. See plate 17. You will also see two other figures in this group. Here is the plunging Lucifer, and here the aspiring Lucifer. And here, down below, is an Aramonic figure linked to Lucifer. And here a second Aramonic figure. And the representative of mankind stands between the Aramonic figure, everything that is Philistine, dry as dust and materialistic, and the Lucifer figure, everything that is effusive and fantastical. The Araman figure, all that leads the human being to petrifaction and sclerosis. The Lucifer figure, all that brings about feverishness beyond what the ordinary health of a human being can tolerate. Having first had in the center of the Gothic cathedral something which contained not an image like this, but perhaps the relic of a saint or even the Holy Grail, Anyway, something which had no direct connection with those in its vicinity. So now, we shall have an all-enveloping building, a building which embraces the human being in his striving for balance. If destiny will permit this building one day to be fully completed, then those seated within it will have before them something which, at the sight of the being, who renders earthly evolution meaningful, will enable them to say, the being of the Christ. The intention is that this should be sensed in an artistic way. There must be no intellectual fantasizing about the Christ. A true feeling and sensing is what must arise. The whole concept is an artistic one, and the most important aspect is what comes to expression artistically. Solely the aspect of feeling and sensing is what matters, without anything intellectual being used as a ladder by which to attain feeling. It is the feeling and sensing which should lead the individual to look eastward while saying, That is you yourself, without this denoting an abstract definition of the human being. For balance can be attained in an infinite number of ways. It is not the image of God which is to be enveloped, for Christians too are not supposed to make an image of God. What is to be enveloped is that which has arisen out of the group soul nature of the human being and become the powerful individuality of every human being. The forms here bear witness to the working and weaving of impulses for individuality. 
if you can approach what I have just said, not through your intellect, which is often the favorite method nowadays, but through your feeling life, and if you can consider that nothing here is intended to be symbolic or intellectual, for our endeavor has been to allow everything to flow out through artistic forms, then you will have grasped the underlying principle which this Gertianum building is intended to express. And you will also have grasped how anthroposophical spiritual science is intended to connect with the inner spirit of human evolution. These days, it is not possible to find meaning in anthroposophical spiritual science without following the path which arises out of the great challenges facing humanity both now and in the near future. It is utterly essential to learn how to speak in a different way about what is actually carrying humanity toward the future. A good many haughty secret societies exist today which actually offer no more than what still stems from the age preceding the great turnaround in the 15th century. And this also often shows in a remarkably superficial manner. We ourselves have often found the same endeavors within our own circle too. How very often have we not been told when trying to point out the special value of occult striving, that this is a very ancient matter. For example, a man once approached us who was presenting himself as something of a Rosicrucian. Whenever he had something to say, which was usually no more than his very own superficial opinion, he made a point of saying, as the Rosicrucians of old would have said, he never omitted to say, of old, Many of today's secret societies like to emphasize the antiquity of what they represent. Some do indeed stem from the Rosicrucians, in their own way, of course, while others reach for further back, especially to ancient Egypt. Anyone wanting to peddle Egyptian temple wisdom can easily hoodwink the majority of today's population merely by announcing his intention. Most of our friends do understand that our anthroposophical spiritual science does not aspire to return to antiquity. What it aspires to is the direct revelation now coming down to the physical world, out of the world of spirit. It therefore has many other matters to discuss, rather than taking seriously those secret societies which rely on antiquated ideas and which still play a considerable role in human events. When you hear what these people who are initiated into certain mysteries belonging to the secret societies have to say, and they do open their mouth occasionally on their own initiative, they chiefly speak about three things. Firstly, they speak about what the genuine seeker finds in the spiritual world when he has crossed the threshold to that world. What he finds is that as soon as he has crossed the threshold to the spiritual world, he encounters powers, which are the actual enemies of mankind, the true, real, spiritual enemies of human beings here on the physical plane. Such people claim to know that something which is hidden from ordinary consciousness is interwoven with those powers 
which can, with some justification, be called the spiritual causes of sickness and death, and is also interwoven with everything connected with human birth. And you will then hear from such people who are knowledgeable about these things that one ought to remain silent about them. They say ought because they mean that one should not tell ordinary folk, by which they mean immature souls, in other words, the majority of humankind, about what exists beyond normal consciousness. The second experience people have when they come to know the truth, one can only know the truth once one has grasped the mysteries of the supersensible world, the second experience is the degree to which everything they observe with their senses is illusion. The more things have been researched, the more they are deceit. Losing the ground under one's feet in this way, the ground which human beings of today need more than ever, losing this ground comes to an end once one has stepped across the threshold. Then they can say, it is a fact, for I have seen it. The third experience is that as soon as we begin to work in the world, whether we use tools or till the earth, whatever work we do as human beings becomes woven into the fabric of the social organism. We are then doing something which is relevant not only to us as human beings, but to the universe as a totality. Nowadays, when people construct a locomotive, or when they manufacture a telephone, or a lightning conductor, or a table, or when they heal a sick person, or do not heal him, but allow him to remain sick, in doing all this, they take it for granted that this is going on solely as a part of human evolution on the earth. But they are wrong. I hinted at this in my mystery drama titled The Portal of Initiation, namely that when something takes place here on earth, events come into play all over the universe. You will remember the scene with Strader and Capacius. This shows a profound truth. These are the three experiences people latch on to if they know about such things. But in those societies they are preserved in a form befitting the middle of the 15th century and are therefore often completely misunderstood. People latch on to these things by pointing firstly to the mysteries of sickness, health, birth and death, secondly to the mystery of the great illusion in the sense world, and thirdly to the mystery of the universal significance of what human beings do in the world. And they have a certain way of talking about these things. But the time has come for all these things, especially for all these most important things, to be talked about in a different way than was habitual in the past. What I want to do is give you an idea of how differently such things were talked of in the past and of the way in which such talk flowed out into popular consciousness, penetrating everyday scientific thinking, everyday social thinking, and so on. And I want to show you how one will have to speak in future, when one is really telling the truth, and what then must flow out from the mystery sources of knowledge and into outer natural ideas and outer social views, and so on. 
It is this tremendous metamorphosis, this historical metamorphosis, which must be comprehended today through the awakening of human beings out of their group consciousness and into their individual consciousness. It is this tremendous metamorphosis about which I still intend to speak to you. The end of Lecture 10